Welcome to episode seven of the Throwing Haymakers podcast. I'm here with Josh and Matt this week. Uh, so Matt, what have you been up to? Reading uh, school starting up here in Canada. It starts two weeks from now. So just trying to get back into the routine of actually going to bed at a reasonable time and everything, but nothing much. How about you guys? Yeah, same for me. Uh, my school year starting here in two weeks too. Different all across the country, but you know, and home until further notice. So <laughs> just yeah, no, living and learning. Yep. Yep. And I'm starting my student teaching my last semester of college this week. So getting near the end, almost graduated, but either way, we got, we got some important hockey stuff to talk about as the NHL has been really uh, thriving with the playoffs the last couple of weeks. It's been a lot of fun action to watch. Uh, and so, Josh, before we get into that, you wanted to say a little something first? Yeah. Uh, I really just want to take a moment to applaud the players uh, and the Hockey Diversity Alliance, not only for what they did, um, but how they cho- chose to go about it. Uh, you know, Wednesday night when the NBA and some WNBA uh, – I think the entire WNBA and some MLB teams uh, chose not to play. You know, I think, you know, anybody's gut reaction to the NHL going ahead with games was, you know, what the hell are you doing? Um, And that was certainly mine. Um, But waking up the next morning and, you know, watching all the news unfold that day, And, you know, hearing what the players had to say about all of that, uh, you know, I believe these guys that Wednesday night after all of that stuff had started to break, there wasn't enough time to hold a meaningful conversation among the players with the Hockey Diversity Alliance, um, like the one that took place Thursday morning. Um, So, you know, while I guess in terms of optics, the decision to go ahead and play Wednesday night wasn't great. Um, I'm really proud of the players for, you know, taking it upon themselves and taking the time Thursday to reach out to Evander Kane and Matt Dumba. And I'm not sure who else was on that Zoom call that happened. Um, But I'm certainly just really proud of the players and the Players Association and everyone involved uh, who made that decision themselves uh, and did it from their own hearts in a place of solidarity instead of just maybe not playing Wednesday night without really understanding the message they were sending. So I'm defending their decision to not play these past two days. And I guess I'm also defending their decision to go ahead and play Wednesday night. I don't think, you know, with, with what the players had come out and said the past couple days that there was enough time on Wednesday to really hold a meaningful conversation like the one that happened Thursday. Um, So proud of the league for doing what they're doing. Um, It is incredibly important for everyone who wants to call themselves a fan to, you know, take the past two days to reflect on what you can do in this society we're living in um, to make things more fair and more just for everyone. and should also be excited to see hockey back on Saturday. So the uh, situation was really well handled by everyone involved. 
Yeah, it was pretty well said. And uh, with that said, I think we'd like to move on to analyze a little bit of our first series that we will have back following this brief pause. And that is Boston and Tampa Bay. Kind of, uh, <laughs> not kind of. It was a heartbreaking game to watch as a, as a Boston fan on Heart, Wednesday heartbreaking, night. Heart, heartbreaking is losing five to four in overtime. You don't get to call okay. this heartbreaking. You, you can call it okay. embarrassing. A better way to – gut-wrenching. That's a yeah. better way to put it. A gut-wrenching performance by Boston, 7-1. to one. I mean, game's over by the end of the second period. Boston was not there. They didn't appear to have any kind of uh, momentum or care for the outcome of this game by that point. Uh, and so Tampa takes the 7-1 lead and – or takes the 7-1 win and takes a 2-1 to one seer lead. And Halak was pulled. We get to see the first action of Dan Vladar's career. So we have to ask now, um, after having played back-to-back games, yeah, they, they have another back-to-backs, um, six, game six and seven. Oh, jeez. You, you're yeah. kidding me. No, I'm not. Oh, Wednesday, that's... September 2nd, and Thursday, September 3rd. So game seven would be the second half of a back-to-back. Yep. That should not happen yep. to anyone. All right, so anyway, moving right along. So this will be the second back-to-back that Boston and Tampa Bay will have, uh, game six and seven. Uh, So if they get that far in the series, uh, does Halak have what it takes to push them through as he was clearly very drained in the first back-to-back? So, you know, going into game six and seven, do we think we have – that Halak will have what it takes to get Boston wins uh, in the series? Uh, So, Josh, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on this? Look, I – I didn't watch that game start to finish. I watched a good majority of it. Vladar was legitimately the better goalie in that game, dude. I don't know what Halak was. And I love him. I love him dearly. I think he's a great person and a great goalie. He was awful. I mean, yeah, I guess Tampa outplayed him. But Tampa didn't outplay them to the tune of seven to one. I mean, I think a a good portion of those goals fall on Halak. Um, and if he comes out with an average performance, I think you're looking at a three-one game or a four-one game. Um, a lot of this loss fell directly on him. Um, and I guess, you know. Allowing two goals in 15 seconds is never a good way to start a game. Uh, So, you know, I guess that could have been a momentum killer for the Bruins as well. But, I mean, just as soon as Tampa scored those two, and then as soon as Sergachev made it three-zip early in the second, I mean, it was over two minutes into the second period. You could just tell. Boston had no interest in actually fighting back. And the only goal they were able to actually score was an exact duplicate of one they had scored in game two. Um, So now if you're Boston, you're playing from behind. Tampa's got you. It's 2-1. And Tampa's, you know, reclaimed home ice, I guess, in line changes only advantage. Um, Yes, I'm worried because of your goaltending performance. 
I think he Pollock started out well. Steadily looked worse and worse for me. Uh, dude is not young. I think he's what? Yeah, he's 35 years old. He's played a lot of hockey. Um, and I think overall, I'd say he hasn't been a great goalie for the Bruins. I think there have been some games that they've won in spite of him. Um, so, yeah, I think this team is really starting to miss Rask. Because uh, I, I just don't know what you're going to do. I legitimately – I get it's a small sample size, but I think of Tampa. I would – if I'm the coach, if Tampa goes up 3-1 in the next game, I'm starting Vladar for game five. What do you have to lose? <laughs> it's an I mean, elimination game. What do you have to lose? I mean, my thing is just, you know, looking at what they've done, I don't have an issue with starting Halak in, you know, if it's not a back-to-back, you know, just play him through if you don't have back-to-backs. But the back-to-backs kill him. And I'm not saying that's necessarily on him. I mean, as we already said, he's up there in age. He's an older goaltender. And there are those uh, stamina concerns. Even Not even with just him, but even with younger goalies, you have stamina concerns. So especially someone who's up there in his career who is a veteran, who's been in this league for a while, you need to give him those rest days. And when you don't give him rest days, these seven-to-one blowouts are what happens. And I'm not saying that Vladar is, you know, going to be the savior. He's going to, you know, single-handedly push us to a championship. But I'm not saying he's that good either. I mean, he's all right. And he, had, he certainly had an excellent year in the AHL. doesn't necessarily mean you can do it at the NHL level. But, you know, right. it's, a, it's at least a good start. You know, we have a competent backup netminder at this point. I mean, Halak was a great backup. He was, a, you know, a 1B to Rask. But now with Rask out of the picture, Vladar is what we've got. And I don't think that he's a bad option. Um, so, you know, in, in those back-to-back no. situations, you've got to play him. And I'd say even maybe, you know, Maybe play him in game six and save Halak for game seven if you make it that far. I don't know, I, but I wouldn't, either way. I wouldn't disagree it. with that either. I mean, he looked calm to me. Like, he didn't Which is impressive like he was, considering it, it, it's his first NHL game he's what, in his 23? career. He's I can find out real quick. I I'm think not they sure. But, I mean, 23. yeah. Yeah. You got to look at the numbers with Halak. So, 17-18, his last season with the Islanders – they played him in 54 games and only rolled out with a 908 save percentage. Boston plays him in 40 games the next season and the save percentage jumps to 922. This is a guy that obviously s- struggles with high workloads. Uh, and, you know, aside from a few outliers early in his career, I mean, really and truly, the three best seasons of his career. He's played under 50 games. And the one, like, really good season he did have when he played over 50 games was, like, eight years ago. Um, So this is obviously not a guy that does super well with extended usage. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Can Halak keep the Bruins afloat against Tampa Bay? Um, I like what you guys said with the 
just looking at him, he's at his best when he's that 1B type of goalie. He's not a guy that's going to go in there. And I think nearing the end of his career, is not going to be a guy who's going to be able to be relied upon to play that many games. And I think maybe the pressure is getting to him now that Rask, of course, left the bubble. And he's that guy. He's the savior. He's the guy that Boston wants, who's going to need them to take, um, to take him to a championship. But I think if he can get his mindset in the proper thing, I think he can go in there and win a few games for them. And like right now they're only down two to one. Of course, the last game was not pretty on their part losing, I think seven to one. I've been out of the loop for the past few days, but I think when it comes down to the end of it, Halak is still a really good goalie in this league and looking at his advanced statistics and everything, he's still a guy that can go in there and win a game for them. And then of course, I wanted to point out Tampa's side of it as well. I just don't I don't see how this team, Rask, of course, is good enough to go in there and win a game, but I just don't see how that's possible against this Tampa team because they're that good. I think now that they have that 3,000-pound weight lifted off their backs by uh, beating Columbus, there's nothing that's going – like, I don't think there's a lot of any like anything that can uh, sink this team. They're, they're rolling on all cylinders – without Stamkos and injury. Yeah. An injury. I just, I don't see how Boston wins it. I was just going to say, I mean, and that's the scary part to me is that they're doing this all without Stamkos. The last time he was out long-term, they, they folded, they missed the playoffs. John Cooper. I mean, it's taken him a while, uh, but he's obviously done a hell of a job coaching this year. Um, and get it and the acquisitions at the deadline. I mean, my God, has Blake Coleman been good? That entire line's been good. Zach Bogosian has been good. I, like, I cannot point to a single guy on this team that's played a game and say, I haven't seen you have a positive impact. Maybe Luke Shen. You know, what's that say? Braden Point has been everything you'd want him to be and more. Uh, Alex Kaloran still excelling as a middle six winger. Andre Palat starting to get things going, playing on that top line, I think. Sergachev is going to be so good, right? Like, Not only is this team great now, they've got a bunch of young guys who are ready to just keep rolling. I mean, the great thing for Tampa is that you haven't been able to say, oh, yeah, Point's been miles ahead of anybody on the team. Oh, yeah, Kucherov's been miles ahead of anybody on the team. You're getting the same quality play out of these guys, and the rest of that team has totally elevated their game. Uh, I'm impressed with what Victor Hedman's been able to do. I think he's playing hurt. I mean, you you don't go down with that injury like he had in that last round robin game. I mean, he's playing hurt. He's playing with a bum foot. Uh, what he's been able to do is, yeah, just a fun team to watch night in and night out. Boston, this is this is exactly what happened last year. Uh, not last year, two years ago, right, Brandon? It was 2018. Boston won game one. Tampa swept them the rest of the way. That said, I do think this year is a little different. Uh, that Bruins team in 2018 
they were coming off or, you know, really just making their first big stride at being a contender, at being a playoff team after that brief hiatus from the playoffs, you know, yeah. struggling for a couple, not necessarily struggling, but kind of refreshing their roster. This is a team that knows how to win. They, you know, we saw them in the finals last year. This is not the same team. Uh, they, they know how to win. They know how to do it right. So, you know, they may not come out of this series with the win, but I do not see it going five games. I think this is going at least six. Oh, I agree. I don't think they're done. Uh, geez. Is this real? Andre Pilat, I'm looking at the advanced stats for that game three. Andre Pilat's offensive zone start percentage. It's the amount of shifts he started in the offensive zone. Zero percent. <laughs> That's kind of surprising considering the, the beating they put down. And Kucherov and Point were at 8.3%. That seems ridiculous wow. considering that how bad that score was. Wow. The most individual Corsi four events. That award goes to Mikhail Sergachev. Jeez, that's that's a weird stat. The lowest guy on Boston for offensive zone start percentage was Krug, and he was at twenty seven point three. Jeez, that's weird. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it's just because they want that matchup against the Bergeron line. I I have not paid enough attention to that series to state that is fact um that's weird i will say a lot got noticed. a goal in the game <laughs> yeah uh, i will say something that i have noticed over the last you know especially last year's playoffs is that bruce cassidy really doesn't like starting with the perfection line he starts no, he, he likes to start with he starts likes to start with the bottom line guys give the game yeah. a little bit of a chippier edge to get things going and then yeah. you know roll out the scoring have Chris Wagner out to start the game. I don't mind that at all. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I just wanted to comment on Vladar, and I think looking back on, although Halak had a terrible game, and yeah, people are worried about if he's going to be able to carry this team far in the playoffs. I think if – I know you wrote an article the other day about explaining, like, Rath's – like, what could happen with him. I think even if he does leave, you have a you have a definitely have a capable backup in Vladar. I think ever since he's been drafted, I think he was the best goal he put up. I think he was tops in goals against average and say percentage in the AHL this season. He's developed really nicely since he was drafted in the third round in 2015 by the Bruins. And I think a lot of fans may be quick to judge him based on what they've seen in the playoffs, but he's a guy that can if he continues to develop, he's a guy that can go out there. And I think first you should insert him into a backup role just to ease him into the NHL and ease his workload. But he's a guy that can go in there and ultimately make an impact, I think, in two to three years. And uh, yeah. something else, too, is that Vladar is not the only, uh, you know, pretty good goalie prospect Boston has. Uh, just give me a second. Uh, Okay, so they have this, yeah, they have this kid, Jeremy Swayman, fourth round pick a few years ago. Oh uh, yeah, I spent him. some time playing at UMaine. Uh, in twenty uh, the twenty nineteen twenty season, uh, here's some of the awards that he he had, or some of the uh, 
accolades, I guess you could say. Wasn't he a he Hobie a, Baker nominee? He was a finalist yeah. for the Hobie Baker. He was the NCAA's top collegiate goalie, the Mike Richter Award. Uh, the NCAA New England Walter Brown Award. NCAA New England MVP. NCAA New England D1 All-Stars. NCAA Hockey East Player of the Year. NCAA Hockey East Goaltender of the Year. NCAA Hockey East First All-Star Team. NCAA East First All-American Team. And NCAA All-USCHO Second Team. So this kid's got potential. Uh, yeah, and a fourth-round pick, that's, that, that's not a bad return on investment. So I'm not trying to take anything away from Vladar, but I think if you've got a goalie in the future in your development system right now, I think it's Swayman. Yeah. Yeah. And looking at it, Josh, you can go ahead. No, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I I think everyone's been introduced to the, the Swayman show this past year. He absolutely dominated at the University of Maine. Uh, 2.07 goals against and a .939 save percentage for this yeah. past season. <clears throat> I don't really know his stats last year, but compared to this year, and you just listed off all those accolades, he's a guy that can definitely – he's gaining a lot of attention, not only in, in and around your area, Brandon, <clears throat> but everywhere else just because you look at Boston and everyone, everyone, every team always looks to the future, even if your team's having success. At least for me, I'm always excited to see the team's prospects and what they're able, the potential that they could have, and just being excited to see what they could do. And I think you guys have two great goalie prospects in Vladar. He's a bit more ready, NHL ready than him. But if Swayman can come in and play a few seasons down in Providence and continue to develop, then you're ultimately looking at your starter in three to four years' time from now. Yeah, and you had mentioned his stats from last year, the 18-19 season in 35 games. No, not quite as good, a 2.77 goals against average and a .919 save percentage. So still pretty decent stats. Um, obviously not as good as this year, but, uh, you know, he is set to start with the Providence Bruins next year. He is now under contract with Boston and really could be the future of Boston's uh, goaltending situation. So definitely a guy we're going to want to keep an eye on over the next few years and a, really a lot of potential there, especially as a fourth-round pick. So, you know, yeah. really, really mm -hmm. good value in that fourth round draft selection uh, yeah you guys definitely have two very solid goaltending prospects and i don't know how the feeling is down there I'll, if you guys want to resign rask or or let him go do you guys like what i mean I, I feel like the general yeah. consensus it, it, it really there is no general consensus you have it depends completely on who you ask because there are Boston fans who have been calling for them to get rid of Rask for years because he can't win the big game. So, you know, move on, let's get somebody else. Then you do have the people who are, you know, all like, Oh, we want to keep Rask. He's our, he's our goalie. He's been our guy for years and we want to keep him around. So it, it's really a, like a flip of a coin. You know, it depends on who you talk to there. There's no general consensus on what people want to do with Rask. I mean, if he wants to stick around, I'd be more than happy to keep him. But at the same time, you know, if he, if he wants to move on, I do think the Boston's in a decent shape for the future. Maybe not for the next couple of years, but they have a, a decent starter in the pipeline, I, I feel like. So we'll have right. to wait and see what happens there. Right. Do the do you know, Brandon, if the Bruins have Max Legacy in the bubble too? Uh, did they bring four point. goalies? I don't think they did, but I'm definitely going to look into that. Because that seems like a weird decision to me. Why would you not bring the guy who at least has NHL experience? I mean, he's not a prospect by any means. I mean, he's a minor league goalie. That's just who he is. But he's at least played some games at the NHL level. Yeah. 
I can find it. Financial website. Okay, here we go. They did bring Maxime Legates into the bubble. Well, that's a good option to me. Yeah, no, if it comes down to it, I get why you went with Ladar. He is the better goalie. Um, And he's huge. Isn't he 6'6? Um, one second. Six, either he's six, six, five, six, five. Six. Six, five oh. and 185 pounds. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Big goalies like that don't actually have to do a lot of goaltending. <laughs> yeah, so. His frame reminds me of Matt Murray. Just because Matt yeah. Murray is so, so tall and so skinny. Rask is the same way. Rask is, you know, he's a decent yeah. size guy. Maybe not quite as tall, but he's, he's relatively thin. I find it kind of surprising want, you have a lot of goaltenders who are thin guys. I was going to point out Bishop, but I he's just so lanky. Yeah. Like, Bishop looks weird. No no offense, Ben, if you're out there. You're a great goalie. Love you. Uh, yeah. Vladar doesn't look 6'6". I mean, you can tell when he's making saves. Uh, the only other guy who really just looks – absolutely humongo to me in the net is Koskinen. I mean, that dude, I sometimes worry if his limbs are actually attached to his body. Well, yeah. there's a pretty good reason you think he looks so big in that because he's 6'7", 209 pounds. Yeah. And only being 209 pounds for a guy that's 6'7". Yeah. Yep. Doesn't have a lot of meat on his bones. Yeah, dude could play in the NBA with that kind of size. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, move on from the Boston and Tampa Bay series, and let's touch on the other series in the East: the Philadelphia Flyers and New York Islanders. Flyers not looking as good as they did in that first round. Yeah. Uh, Other getting shut out in the first game and then blowing a three-goal lead, still managing to win in overtime, but that you know they needed overtime to get done. So, Matt, I want to start with you on this one. What do you think of Philadelphia and the New York Islanders? Um. Yeah, like I said earlier, I haven't been able to catch. I missed game two in, in, its, in its entirety, but no one, I don't think anyone expected the Flyers after they absolutely dominated the round robin and had a pretty easy task of defeating the Montreal Canadiens would come out and play this poorly against the New York Islanders. The New York Islanders just, they look almost unbeatable. It's like exactly like Tampa. Although they could go down one or two goals, it seems like they just have the right guys that know their job and know how to do their job to be able to bring them back into the game. And you saw that with the the comeback that they put on, they were able to grind away and come back from three down to ultimately tie it up, but they couldn't end it in overtime. I think Philadelphia is going to have to be a lot sharper in every aspect of their game. If they wish to defeat the Islanders, just because you got guys like Beauvillier and Barzal that can are piling up the offense and then guys defensively, the Islanders are one of the stingiest teams in the entire NHL. And then you have good goalie in Varlamov. It's, I, don't, I don't really see a weak point in this entire team, and Philadelphia is definitely going to have to put all their minds together to f- try and come up with a game plan to outplay the, the Islanders. I like what I saw from them at the start of Game 2 just by watching a few of the highlights, but at the end of Game 2, losing – Losing a three-goal lead is never something that the team should be proud of, and that they're they're definitely gonna have to be paying attention as they head into game three and on for sure. 
and something I wanted to like mention real quick is just you know Barry Trotz teams have especially the Capitals have a history of being second round playoff exits and I don't see it with the Islanders this year you know I thought that going in you know I thought like yeah they'll get to the first round but I don't see any way they're gonna get the, all the way to the conference finals with the way they've played against Philly I could totally see them making it to the conference finals I could see them maybe making it to the Stanley Cup finals um either way you know it, it's something that is notable I mean the way this team is playing is kind of unprecedented and they could potentially be, we could be looking at a deep run from the Islanders this year. It wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if they make it to the Stanley Cup finals winning. It might be a different question, but uh, you know, definitely being in that, in that group is not out of the question. Um, so Josh, let's go to you. What are your thoughts on Philly and New York? This is Barry Trotz for you. I mean, it's what the whole series has been. Philly figured it out in the first period, obviously were good enough to chase Varlamov, who had played every minute so far. And that's an accomplishment when you have a guy as good as Thomas Grice as your safety net. Grice came in, did great, 20 saves on 21 shots, only giving up the OT winner. So, yeah, he's good to go if you want to start him. Uh, But that was Trotz. I mean, Philly had the first period. Trotz said, okay, we're not going to let you do that anymore. And they didn't score the next three goals. It, the, the Islanders, they control games. It's like watching someone play a video game on easy mode, where if they are actually paying attention and in, in it, they're going to win the game. Um, fly lands on your forehead, maybe you spill a glass of water, you're going to lose focus for a couple seconds, letting a goal, boo-hoo. Uh, and that's kind of the vibe I get from this team, um, where they just have very momentary lapses that you're going to have when you're a team like the Islanders, who isn't really that super actually skilled. Um this is just a team that it's almost like watching the Penguins when both Crosby and Malkin are hurt. Like this is just a team that is going to win games and they know how to win games. They don't need guys to be Kucherovs. Um, I hate watching it. I hate watching it. I absolutely hate watching it this series for me is the do we really need to talk about the biggest storyline of this series was and friggin andy green scoring the first goal of the series that is legitimately the biggest storyline both teams were the color orange i guess that's something to talk about too i just don't it's boring hockey it's so boring and that totally advantages the islanders um, with that said, Philly figured it out. Um, and they've obviously demonstrated that they work really well as a cohesive team unit, especially with guys like Joel Farabee and breaking out. And oh, you could be getting Oscar Lindblom back. What's that going to do for that? 
that team is going to play their friggin' hearts out to make sure he gets a chance to get back on the ice. Um, I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about that and the hustle and bustle of everything. Uh, So if he gets a chance here to come back, because he's in the bubble, he's practicing with the team. I don't think it's super long until he's, you know, especially with this pause that almost advantages the Flyers. Gives him a couple days to go, okay, you got this. Oscar could be back. Um, They're going to play for him. Uh, The Islanders better be ready for that. And something that I remember seeing, uh, it was a a stat shown by NBC. I I believe it was going into game two, was that I think it was the top four or five goal scorers on the Flyers went into game two of the Islanders series with no goals in the playoffs. Like, that's kind of ridiculous to think that a team that has a decent amount of scoring capability, their top scorers couldn't get goals in the in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, I think uh, – uh, excuse me. I think Hayes had one goal. That was it. Yeah. I don't think Giroux's got one, right? Like, it, it's just been – yeah. Not great. All right, so looking out west at the Vancouver Canucks and Vegas Golden Knights series, uh, Tyler DeFoe has clearly had a pretty big impact on the, on that series so far. He's got two games played in these playoffs and three points, one goal, two assists uh, in that time span. So after coming over from the Los Angeles Kings, uh, he could really be a, a big part of Vancouver's success this postseason. So, Josh, uh, you know, be, being our big Vegas guy over there, uh, do you think Vegas is going to be able to slow him down and keep him, on, keep him under check? Uh, yeah. How, how many games have the Golden Knights lost? in the playoffs. Is this their second loss in the bubble? Because they went undefeated in the round robin and beat Chicago in five. I thought game one against Vancouver was their easiest game of the series, of the entire postseason. Vancouver came out completely flat. There was no chance. Um, So... I guess Vancouver coming out like this uh, was to be expected. Travis Green is a hell of a coach, uh, and he wasn't going to let those guys sit there and take it. Uh, Didn't notice the whole Reeves-Roussel dynamic as much as in game two, and I think that obviously benefited the Canucks. Uh, You know, you can talk about how – Reeves isn't that great of an actual player. Sure, but dude, he's the reason Vegas won that game 5 nothing. He gets in their heads, uh, and Vegas is going to win the physical trash talk grody area of the game. Um, Vancouver's going to beat you with skill. Hughes, Pedersen, and, you know, that, that, that Toffoli goal was huge. I think he had three points in the game. Uh, so, obviously, they're going to write on him a lot. He was shooting 33%. That ain't going to hold up. Uh, but, again, Leonard, 22 saves on 26 shots. I'm not happy with that. 
I'm not happy with the way he played. I think he has been – it hurts to say it, but he's been pretty straight-up mediocre. Um, that shutout in game one gave me hope. And, again, he wasn't really being challenged. Like, Vegas just had the puck the whole time, which is how they were. shots on goal for the Canucks in that game. Yeah. But they weren't good shots. They're floaters. Right? Flurry was not has not been good in his two games. He's an eight eighty six save percentage. That's terrible. He's also two and zero. Vegas has won games in these playoffs despite their goaltending. You get what I'm saying here, right? That this yeah. team is should be everybody's cup favorite. The only reason they're not undefeated in 10 games in the bubble is because of their goaltending. They've played well enough to be undefeated. They haven't. That was their closest thing to a stinker. And I don't think it was that bad. I just think Vancouver took advantage of every little thing they could get. You have to give them all the credit for that. Leonard should have been there to bail them out. Leonard needs to be that 920-plus goalie. This is – i he's got to get it in his head now because this is sinking the amount of money he's going to get on this extension. Because I – he wants to stay in Vegas, and I think Vegas wants him. Um, and it worked really well in the regular season. Um, but you can, you can only imagine – and you can only take everybody's performance in a bubble environment that brings so many other mental challenges. You can only take those performances with a grain of salt. Um, I'm not saying that that invalidates the results of whoever wins or whatever, uh, because it is so much harder to win in this environment. I think it should be praised even more, not taken away from. But individual performances, you can't put stock into it. Uh, but it would have been nice, Robin, for you to be the 920 goalie. We know you are. Uh, he hasn't been. I'm waiting to see it. I'd like to see him start Flurry in game three. Just, just to see. Give Leonard a mental break. Let him refocus his game. He's not been bad. Flurry's been bad. <laughs> the team was just stellar in front of him. Uh, I'd like to see him start Flurry just to give him one more shot at redemption. Because uh, they can obviously win games with him and that is not the issue there. But if Flurry really struggles in game three, I can totally understand that being his last action of the playoffs. All right, so Matt, let's go to you. What do you think about uh, the Vegas and Vancouver series? Yeah, I'm not going to touch too much on Vegas just because I feel like as if Josh, of course, just mentioned how dominant of a team they are and how they're rolling on all the all cylinders. And there are a lot of people's cup favorites, and I understand that. But I I, I just I was just going to touch base on Vancouver's side of it. I know you mentioned Toffoli earlier. I think he looked really good in the two games that he played. He was playing with uh, Pearson and Pedersen on the top line. And I think 
given his chemistry with Pearson with all their years and their cup runs in LA, I think that added a, a whole new dynamic, especially with a guy that you have. And even with Pedersen, I think he can play with anyone just because of how good he is with the puck and everything. So that was a really smart move on Travis's green part. I really like the way that they played. I would keep that line together for as long as they're playing. And like looking at Vancouver as a whole, they, there were some times where I was like, this isn't the team that I know they could be. And then there was other times that I was like, oh yeah, this is the team that is giving everyone hope here up in Canada. But at the end of the day, I think you're going to have to have a lot more than Toffoli rolling if you wish to beat the Vegas Golden Knights just because of how good they are. And Vancouver, it's been a heck of a run so far. The love in Vancouver is felt all the way over here. You can see how much passion they have and how excited they are for their run. And all the fans are out celebrating at night. It's a lot of fun to see. But I think if they don't, if everyone's not rolling and like trying their best, I don't see how they could get past Vegas just because of how good Vegas is. Look, right? I mean, this is a team that has shown they have some consistency issues. Not a knock against this team. None of us expected, well, I had them being here in my bracket that I put together in July of 2019. Seriously, my, my predictions that I did in July of 2019 are more accurate than my actual bracket I did two weeks ago. Uh, but that's to be expected from a young team. You didn't expect them to go this far, and you didn't expect them to put up a fight against a team as strong as Vegas. You didn't expect them to take out a defending cup champion. This this is the Carolina Hurricanes from last year. It's the exact same team. Uh, they shouldn't win this round. They won't win this round. They will be back next year as... Pending to see what Toronto is able to put together this offseason, they will come back next year as Canada's cup favorite, as they should. Um, the time just isn't quite there for Vancouver. It will be very soon. But I got to say, as- too, that this is a little bit of a testament to how well, how good some of these young guys are. The fact that they're in this series, they shouldn't even be in the playoffs this deep, if you ask me. They shouldn't have made it this deep, considering how young this team is. Elias Pettersson, 16 points in 10 games played in the postseason. JT Miller, another young guy, 11 points in 10 games played. Quinn Hughes, 11 points. Brock Besser, 9 points. These are all their young stars. The building blocks for their future have all been playing roughly at a point-per-game pace. I like what I'm seeing, and this is some good stuff. I mean, uh, they're going to be, like you said, they're not – this isn't their window right this second, but they'll be a very good team in a couple of years. Yeah, and it's a testament to Jim Benning as well. A lot of people love to rat on him. I never got it. Yeah, he's in some bad contracts. So maybe contracts aren't his forte, but I like the guy. He's done a great job building this team. Um, I'll go to bat for him. All right, any last thoughts, guys, on Vancouver and Vegas? Are you good? All right, so we'll move on to our last series then. All right, so looking at Dallas and Colorado, Dallas kind of surprised people 
came out swinging, took the first two games, and Colorado bounced back in the third game, win, winning it. Uh, so we're looking at a, a two-to-one Stars lead over the Avalanche. And Avalanche are a heavily favored team to not only go to the Stanley Cup finals, but to maybe win it all. What do you guys think? Are they going to be able to make that run, or are they going to get bounced by Dallas here in the second round? So, Matt, let's start with you for this last series that we've got to cover. Uh, what do you think about Colorado and Dallas? Is it me? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, my internet froze, so I didn't hear any of it. Um, yeah, I think Dallas is Dallas has surprised a lot of people. Um, I, for one, was not one that expected them to at least to win two games against Colorado. I thought Colorado would win in five, but um, I'm going to give praise to a team that's been really, really good. Heiskanen, Heiskanen has been one of the best defenders that I've seen all playoffs, just given how young he is and how much he's, he's their number one defender and Klingberg. Yeah, you could, yeah, he's the number two, but just how good he's been on his own is unbelievable to me. The way he, he creates plays from the back end, the outlet passes to his forwards, breaking through their neutral zone, just knowing what the play is like, how the play is going to unfold before it even happens. I love how he's played from the back end. You got to give kudos to Joe Pavelski, a guy who's always been solid in the playoffs. He's showed up again with a hat trick, I believe. I forget what game it was, but he's a guy that can always be relied upon when the time is tough. But at the end of the day, I don't really see them. Even I think Colorado's going to wake up eventually. It's they're just too good of a team to to not do well. You look at, at you you could look at anywhere in their lineup, and it's talent, talent, talent. Guys like Kadri stepping up in the playoffs. McKinnon's his usual self. Rantanen's been putting up major points. Landis Cog, although he may not show much as much up on the score sheet as the other guys, he's making impacts in the defensive zone, face-offs, winning them. Although I think Johnson, Johnson and Grubauer are out indefinitely, but I think I'd have enough confidence in Francois to be able to go in there and win a two or three games just because of how good the team is in front of them. Again, the question was is Dallas for real and I really like how they've been playing but at the end of the day I don't really see them making a long run in the playoffs just because of how good Colorado is and if they wake up then I think it's over for them right, Josh you're up yeah um man It was really, really – game two was so just straight-up embarrassing for Colorado. Game one was whatever. You had a couple guys get hurt. You had Grubauer leave the game. There were a lot of excuses, which you don't like to use in the playoffs, but there were a lot of excuses and reasons why Colorado did not win that game one. Um, where's your excuse now? They needed that third period in game three. That's the thing. They Dallas had them into the third period of game three. Dallas had them, which is a scary, scary thing if you're an Avs fan. Colorado needed to dominate that game three, and they ended up winning by the skin of their teeth. Colorado, the team 
of McKinnon and Landeskog and Rantanen and Kadri and Burakovsky and Makar and Girard and everybody. Beat a team that can't score by the skin of their teeth. Has Dallas scored four goals in every game in this series? I think they have. I'm going to check on that. Yeah, they have. Dallas scored five goals in game one, five goals in game two, four goals in game three. This is embarrassing. This is an embarrassing series if you're Colorado. Um, you've got to, uh, it's really hard to predict the rest of this series because Colorado is obviously not performing to the level they can perform. I don't know what to believe. I don't know whether to believe the first two periods of game three or the 10 minutes or so in the third period that Colorado turned it on because that looked like Colorado. But you need to play like that for every minute of the remainder of this series. You cannot let Dallas get the momentum back. If Dallas wins, it's over. And you're going home. And there's no way that you should have lost this series to this team that doesn't even have Ben Bishop. Kadobin's been good. Colorado has not. McKinnon's been good. Where's Kadri in this series? Where is he? I haven't noticed him. I've noticed Makar. I've noticed Zadorov. Where's Gerard? I haven't noticed him. Where's Burakovsky? I haven't noticed him. Where's Donsquay? I think he was a healthy scratch. Or maybe he was just unfit to play. I can't remember. Where's uh, Tyson Jost, this guy who was supposedly supposed to be so good for your franchise? I haven't noticed him. This team has... What Colorado... Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, no, go ahead. I've said all I needed to say. Okay. Yeah, so looking at what Colorado's been, I mean, they just haven't been the same team. What they need is they need the team that just beat the living crap out of the Arizona Coyotes. They scored... 22 games against Arizona in that series alone. 22 goals for the entire team in five games. Those are pretty solid numbers. You need that team to show up now against Dallas. I I would say that Dallas has on par, if not slightly better goaltending than Arizona and Ben Bishop. I will give them that. But the overall quality of the Dallas Stars is not that much better than the Arizona Coyotes. You had Nathan McKinnon, who has 20 points so far in 12 games played in these playoffs. Miko Rinton has 15 points. Nazim Kadri, a guy who is a second-line player at best on this team, has 14 points. He has been outstanding for them. So why can't you win games? You need to capitalize on these advantages. Here's the reason. Dallas, Colorado won against Arizona in five games. You said they scored 22 goals. Dallas, if they continue to score at the goal-scoring pace they are in the series, which is 4.67 goals per game, if Dallas wins this series in five, like Colorado won in five, Dallas is on pace to score 23 goals. Colorado's defense 
has been embarrassing. Especially when you look Off- at when you have a guy like Kellen been, Carr. Offense has been great on the power play. Colorado's power play has been great. McKinnon's looked great on the power play. Where is this team at even strength? Because I don't see him. Dallas has I have one. Dallas is doing to Colorado what I thought Vegas was going to do to Colorado. And I was waiting for this. I was waiting for Vegas to do this and say, this is why. This is why Colorado is so overhyped. Um, Dallas is doing it to them. The Stars, the team who didn't have their top line score a goal against Calgary. This is something Calgary I took them to six games. weeks ago. Calgary took him to six games. Guy with Cam Talbot playing over his head, but a top line that couldn't do anything, and an injured Matt Kachuk. And Calgary took him to six games. And you're telling me there's a real shot that Dallas is going to beat Colorado at five? This team has been nowhere at even strength. It's sad. It's sad. It's not Here's good. the thing. Here's what I talked about a couple weeks ago. I was talking about Adam Fox and how he should have been a, a Calder nominee. Well, you look at what Kale McCarr's doing. He's been heralded as the future of the Colorado defense. He's, he's been outstanding. I can't argue that. But here's the yeah. thing. He's been outstanding offensively. His defensive impact is not nearly what it needs to be. If you want to talk about a team having a solid defense, you need him to be strong. You need Eric Johnson to be strong. You need to bring Tyson well, Bury back from, from Toronto. Well, let's not diss on McCarr more than we need to here. In, that, um, in the game that Colorado won, game three, he led the team in defensive zone starts and ended up with a Corsi 4 of 60.9% and a relative Corsi of 20 0.2%. Makar is not the problem. Their depth is. Look at the guys with the worst Corsi on this team. Tyson Jost. Negative 26.8. You can't have that in one game. You just can't. Comfer, Nieto, Cole, all negative Corsis below 20. Uh, now, Dallas had a couple guys, too, but Well, either way, if, if, if Colorado can keep having performances like that in the defensive zone from McCarr, then they'll be fine. But the thing is, he hasn't shown that kind of consistency where I'm comfortable saying he won't be a defensive liability. I mean, I don't think he's a liability. I just think you want more from him. Yeah, uh, I, I guess that's a better way to put it. I mean, that, that's more what I'm getting at. But either way, you need look, him to he's be not- strong. He's not their best defensive defenseman. That role falls to Ryan Graves, um, who was underwhelming, has been underwhelming in the playoffs. Uh, Same thing with Ian Cole. The depth isn't performing, and this is what happens. Dallas is getting goals from Radic Foxer. Dallas is getting goals from Jamie Alexiak. Colorado's getting goals from McKinnon and Kadri. And Landeskog and Rantman. And I guess you can now throw Nikita Zadorov in there because, of course, it's 2020. Nikita Zadorov is having multi-point games. (sighs) 
it's really frustrating. Um, Dallas is winning the depth matchup, which there's no way they should be doing. And they are. Decidedly, I'd say. Pavelski has been beyond incredible for this team. Gurionov is the real deal. He's here, and he's here to stay, and he's going to be a 20-goal scorer in this league for years to come. But Colorado has a bunch of those guys, and they haven't shown up. And I'm done waiting, because now you're down in a second-round series against a team that you should not be trailing against. Yeah. So uh, one of the biggest headlines this week, one of this week's biggest headlines involved a really blockbuster deal. We saw Kasperi Kapanen be dealt out of Toronto to the team that drafted him, the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Pittsburgh, uh, there are various other moving pieces, but the big piece that left Pittsburgh uh, was their first-round draft selection this upcoming year. So, Matt, I want to start with you on this one. What do you think about Kasperi Kapanen leaving Leafs and heading to uh, the City of Steel? Yeah, it's it's bittersweet, at least from my perspective, because the Kapanen trade signified the start of the rebuild for the Maple Leafs just because he was acquired in the Phil Castle deal. I've always liked him as a as a player, watching him essentially grow from a guy who could only he only had offense to a two-way player and a guy who who can make an impact on that third line. I think we were talking about it over the last few days. I think Josh mentioned the way I like to describe it his feet move faster than his 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 hands do, so he's always causing he's always having those brain like some brain farts in the neutral zone. And I didn't like that sometimes when I was watching him, but he was a solid player. I really liked him. His speed was something that I'm going to miss for sure on the penalty kill, watching him chase after pucks and everything. I think he added a really solid dynamic to the Leafs team, but I'm excited to see what the future holds for us because that number one, that 15th overall pick in this year's draft is something that, I wanted so bad. This draft is going to be looked upon in a few years as a draft that got some serious talent. And I was upset that the Leafs traded their first round pick to Carolina to offload the Marlowe contract, but reacquiring it back. Praise Dubas. He absolutely robbed Rutherford. And I want Seth Jarvis. Like, that's who I want. I just... He's such a he's such a game breaking player that he's a guy that I think the Leafs he would fit right into the Leaf system. Right hand shot that can play that on that slot. You have Matthews on one side and him on the other in a power play in the few years, and it's it it just makes me it it would make me so excited to draft him. And then looking at the the minor deals, although we traded. Um, Jesper Lindgren, I think he has a bit of a potential. He's a guy that's the Marlies had nine points in like 38 games. He's a guy that would probably be like a sixth defenseman at best. I wasn't too I wasn't too upset with that. And then Pontus Aberg, I had no idea what what was that. I thought we signed to one year deal and his rights were expired, but he signed with Tractor in the KHL for next season. So I have no idea what Pittsburgh's gonna do with him. And then looking at the Leafs side, I really like Philip Hollander. Uh, other than maybe um, Pierre-Olivier Joseph and um, Samuel Poulin, he was that their, one of their top prospects. Um, Kalen Addison was their top prospect, but they, he got traded, of course, in Minnesota in the Zucker deal. 
I think Hollander could be a, a good top six guy if his ceiling, if he attains his ceiling. He's he put up 14 points in 27 games in the Swedish Hockey League, which is really good for a, a guy that that young. Um, I know I read about it on Twitter the other day that the Leafs have liked him for a long time, and I think Dubis really pulled the switch on this one. He pulled the blind eye over Rutherford, Rutherford to be able to extract that first round pick and the Hollander guy. I just, I don't see where you can see, say how Pittsburgh won this deal. Toronto, Dubis has always walked the line with the salary cap. I've never really liked how we've dedicated $40 million to four guys. I don't think you can win a Stanley Cup with that amount of money allotted to that four guys. I just said that. Um, but the way he manages to save money here and there that goes under the radar and salary cap dumps and reacquiring those prospects and those picks that he can flip to a guy that can make an impact in our line right now is something that makes me bring back a bit of hope that I lost when the Leafs exited for the fourth year in a row. I When I saw the pick and I saw what we got back, it made me excited. I'm I'm excited to see what the Leafs do with this trade. And I wish Captain all the luck in Pittsburgh because he's a guy that I've really liked since the day we acquired him. I want to look at this from the Pittsburgh side a little bit too. I mean, obviously, like you said, I mean, this is clearly a win for the Leafs. I don't think there's any debate about that. But getting Barry Kapanen back in the, in Pittsburgh is really a, a good solid addition for them because scoring options all on one hand and Zucker, right. Sherry, Gensel. I said Gensel. Rust. Rust. That's it. Rust is their other big guy that I like. All right. So Crosby, Malkin, Gensel, and Rust. All right. Those are their, like their top four scoring options right now. You throw Kasperi Kapanen in that mix, and that, that's really a solid addition. That gets Pittsburgh back on their feet. I still have concerns about their defense. You know, Latang's getting up there in age, and I don't really have a lot of guys over there that I have a lot of confidence in. But either way, you know, they're getting to the point where I could see them potentially, you know, if they add another couple more pieces in free agency or something, being a team that could make another run at the Cup over the next couple of years. So we'll definitely have to keep an eye on it. It's something to watch, but I don't think it's necessarily – a bad move by the Pittsburgh Penguins. So, I mean, Kapanen's a great guy. Love him. He's not a top six forward <laughs> at all. Him and Michael Grabner are the same player. Great penalty killer, great speed. But he's just so frustrating to watch. Um, he's not going to work well with Crosby or Malkin. So let's let's recap what Pittsburgh actually got. Pittsburgh got a third line forward a defenseman who's never going to play for him, and a forward who's never going to play for him. Two useless pieces and a third-line forward. For a third-line forward, Pittsburgh gave up a first-round pick that will likely translate into a second-line forward, or first-pairing defenseman. Philip Hollander, a potential third-line forward. Evan Rodriguez, a potential third-line forward, and David Warsawski, which is whatever, defensive depth. So Pittsburgh gave up 
three third-line forwards for one third-line forward. Three is more than one, Jimmy. It's not good. It's just it's just not good. Hollander is going to be great. Whoever they get with that first-round pick is going to be great. Rodriguez, if they want to keep him, is going to be good. They aren't going to miss Kapanen, guys. Newsflash. There's no reason to not make this trade. There was a scenario about 11 or 12 years ago where the Leafs signed this guy named Jeff Finger to a big bloated deal. And people were really confused because he was a seventh defenseman on Colorado, who was half decent. And the rumor was that the Leafs signed the wrong guy, that they literally signed the wrong free agent avalanche defenseman, that they meant to go after Kurt Sauer and not Jeff Finger. I totally believe that happening, considering the dysfunction of the organization at that time. You have to wonder, and I've seen this floating around, and I'm going to entertain it. Did Jim Rutherford legitimately confuse Jesper Lindgren with Timothy Liljegren? That has to be something that's entertained here. Because otherwise, this is just such an unbelievably bad trade. Unless they really do like Kapanen that much. And their internal value system is obviously all out of whack, considering how much Jim Rutherford has gone to bat for friggin' Jack Johnson. There's something up here. I mean, considering the names are that similar, it wouldn't be utterly shocking. Right. It's just, man, it's a terrible trade. It's a terrible trade for Pittsburgh. Like, truly, like, I'd almost say worse than, like, a Hall for Larson trade. They've given up so much. I get it's not as much star power, but they've given up so much value in this trade for so little in return. And none of this is a knock on Kapanen. I want him to prove me wrong. I just don't think he's going to. He doesn't have the hockey IQ to play with those guys. So, Duba stole this one. Absolutely. I guess the time will only be the one to tell if Kapanen will truly develop into a guy who can be second line at best because um, we all know he's probably not first line in that offense. But either way, um, we'll have to wait and see if, if the price was really worth it. So um, with that said, I think that does it for Episode 7 of the Throwing Haymakers podcast. We'll have Episode 8 out for you next week. And I'm sure we'll have a, a couple of teams by, eliminated by then. So uh, we'll, ha- we'll have plenty of action to talk about uh, in next week's episode. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And make sure you tune back in again uh, next week. Bye.